It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 229 for February 13th, 2010, recorded on February 11th. This week in Egypt, revolution. On TechBiter Worldwide, it's resolution. And all I can say about that is, dots all there is. Whoever decided to add resolution data to image files probably thought it was a good idea. Maybe at the time it was. But the addition has done nothing more than create a great amount of confusion. And now I'm going to foolishly try to resolve the confusion. The real problem seems to be that many people think this is a complicated subject, and because that's what they think, they make it a complicated subject. Well, it's not complicated, and although some math is required, it's the type of calculation that was covered well before you got to middle school. Once you understand what's going on, you'll be able to stop thinking about resolution and start thinking about dots, because that's all that really matters. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see two images, side by side. The one on the left is set to a resolution of 100 dpi. The one on the right is set to a resolution of 1000 dpi. Take a look at the website. See if you can discern any difference between those two images. The on-screen images appear to be identical, but I might be tricking you. Right-click the images and save them to your computer if you want, And then look for any differences you might find. Both of these images started from the same original. It was an image 3,710 pixels wide, 2,386 pixels tall. It had a nominal resolution of 240 dpi. When I exported the images, I set them to a pixel width of 380 pixels. That's for both files. I set the resolution on one to 100 pixels per inch, and I set the resolution on the other to 1,000 pixels per inch. What's telling is that the document size width is 3.8 inches for the 100 pixel per inch image, and it's 0.38 inches for the 1,000 pixel per inch image. And if you look at the properties for the two files, you'll see that the file with a resolution of 100 pixels per inch has a size of 146 kilobytes, to be precise, 149,562 bytes. And the file with a resolution of 1,000 pixels per inch has a file size of 146 kilobytes, to be precise, 149,603 bytes. Okay, there's a difference, a very small difference. So even though one of these files is nominally 100 dpi and the other is nominally 1000 dpi, the difference between the files is only 41 bytes, or three hundredths of one percent. I think we can consider that to be unimportant. You may be ahead of me here, but let's look a little further. There are two main points. First, on a screen, the only thing that matters is dots, or pixels or, if you prefer, pixels. On paper, resolution is important, but the printed resolution has no relationship to the nominal resolution specified in the file. 
actual printed resolution depends on just two things. The size of the original image in pixels and the size of the printed image in inches or centimeters. When you know the original image size and the print size, finding the resolution involves one easy calculation using either the height or the width, and that's assuming that you haven't stretched the image one way or the other. Assuming that to be true, it doesn't matter which you use, height or width. I usually use width. Divide the number of pixels by size, and you'll obtain the number of pixels per inch or pixels per centimeter. So I have an image that's 1,200 pixels wide. When printed on photographic paper that's 6 inches wide, I will have a resolution of 1,200 divided by 6, or 200 pixels per inch. Easy, right? Print professionals usually need to work things out the other way, though. You'll be printing an image 3 inches wide in a magazine that requires a minimum resolution of 240 pixels per inch. So how large does the original image need to be in pixels? And forget completely about anything having to do with resolution as related to the file itself. Again, we're just considering the width here because you can use height, width, or diagonal as long as you haven't changed the image's aspect ratio. So this time we know the final size that's needed is 3 inches. And the required resolution is 240 pixels per inch. So the size required for the original image is the printed size times the resolution, 3 inches, times 240 pixels per inch, or 720 pixels. Also easy, right? As easy as that is, it's even easier on the screen, because screen resolution is essentially fixed. Older CRT screens could handle multiple resolution settings, but the current crop of LCD screens work properly only at their native resolutions. A monitor that shows 1920 pixels in a display port that's 18.5 inches wide has a resolution of 104 pixels per inch. Nominally, screen resolution is often stated at 96 pixels per inch. If you want a nice round number, just use 100. For most monitors, that's close enough. So, if you have an image that's 800 pixels wide, it'll be approximately 8 inches wide on most standard modern monitors. Weasel word alert. The weasel words in that sentence are most, standard, and modern. Devices designed for specialized use will not follow these rules. But if you're preparing images for those kinds of devices, you probably already know what the rules are. And if you're going to mail a photograph for viewing on screen, the width of the image in pixels should be somewhere between 600 and 1,000. The larger the image, the longer it will take for you to send it, the longer it will take the recipient to download it. If you know that most of the people you're sending pictures to have large screens and fast connections, use sizes in the 800 to 1,000 pixel range. If you know you're sending to mainly people who have slower connections or smaller screens, stay down around 600 to 800 pixels. And for most of us, that's where you can stop. Because I lied earlier. It does get a little complicated from this point on. But most people don't need the rest of this information. Because here's where the fly does a nosedive into the ointment. If you don't prepare photographs for publication in print, and you never order a photographic print larger than 11 by 14 inches, you can safely ignore everything I'm going to say for the rest of this segment. Files that are prepared for a printing press go through what's called a raster image process, or RIP, that creates a negative or a plate for printing. The press will have specifications for image resolution. For newspapers, the number is often under 100. For high-quality magazines, it might be around 300. 
for some magazines it's even higher more is not better though if a rip that needs a 300 dpi image receives an image that would actually provide 400 dpi resolution the process will continue pretty much normally it'll be a little slower but it'll work out all right but if that rip that needs a 300 dpi image receives a 900 dpi image one of two very bad things will happen Number one, the rip will take far longer than it should, which will make the printer very, very annoyed. Or the rip will simply crash, which will make the printer even more annoyed. A publication specialist might receive an image that's 6,000 pixels wide from a professional photographer, and this image may be scheduled to print two inches wide in the next issue of the Daily Foonblatt, which requires 150 dpi resolution. Now what? Well, this too really isn't very difficult if you don't allow the numbers to frighten you. If the image needs to be 150 dpi and the width is 2 inches, then it should be clear that the image presented to the rip should be 300 pixels wide. The problem is that the image is actually 6,000 pixels wide. Using an application such as Photoshop, you could dial in the resolution of 150 or maybe 200, because using a number that's slightly better than specified is usually beneficial. And then you dial in the finished size, 2 inches. The image editor application will do the rest. And it's not much harder if you need to do the math manually. Just calculate the percentage that your desired size, 300 or 400 pixels, remember, what percentage it is of the original size, 6,000. That would be 0.05 for 300 or 0 0.0666 for 400. Reduce the size based on the percentage, and the press operator, the Daily Foonblatt, will be delighted. Numerous other considerations can come into play as images move from the computer to print, including how large an image can be printed from a given digital file. The resolution needed can vary depending on the intended use. For example, posters that you might find at eye level, think lunchrooms in the office, a school bulletin board, or a subway station, those will be printed at relatively high resolution, 100 dpi or more, while the image used on a billboard designed for viewing from automobiles from the freeway at 65 miles an hour might have only 10 dpi resolution. That's because people will view these from a considerable distance, and distance has an effect on resolution. All of these considerations apply when you're using a scanner, too. But let's stop while we're ahead. Now, go forth and digitize. Amazon allows Kindle users to download free books. So far, I haven't found any good free books, but I keep trying. If you're more interested in audiobooks, you might find that podiobooks.com has some books you'll enjoy. Podiobooks.com, free serialized audiobooks delivered on your schedule. That's their motto. The site bills itself as a place where listeners, authors, and creators can come together and take advantage of the social space, all dedicated to what we offer from Podiobooks.com. If you don't think you have time to listen to audiobooks, think again. We're delighted to bring you free books, the site says, but there are real costs associated with the service. Donations are encouraged and authors receive 75% of the donations. The offerings are impressive, from alternative history and audio drama through chiclet, erotica, and historical fiction, all the way to thriller, travelogue, and young adult. Some of the works are newly written and recorded by the authors. Others are classics, such as The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum. 
In most cases, the narrators aren't the voice of God that most major publications hire to create audiobooks. They're just plain folks who read and record books. Sometimes the quality of the recording is high, and sometimes, well, let's just say that sometimes it leaves a little to be desired. What you won't find is audiobooks of current bestsellers, but you already knew that, didn't you? Give 65 Below a listen. Here's a description of the book. After 20 years hunting terrorists under orders to render harmless, U.S. Marine Corps Master Sergeant Marcus Orlando Johnson, Mojo to his friends, settles into a quiet rural retirement on his childhood home in the Alaskan backwoods. But the idyllic retirement is shattered when Marcus comes across soldiers of America's staunchest enemy who are about to unleash a nightmarish biological weapon on the world from the most unexpected of places. It's written and read by Basil Sands, who's a pretty darn good narrator good example of what the system can provide. I think you'll find it interesting. Bottom line is Three Cats, Creative Commons Audiobooks. Now, you may need to search a little to find some good audiobooks, but it's a worthwhile experiment, and it's one that's worth spending some time with. For more information, check out the Podiobooks website, and you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The world is running out of IP addresses. When the Internet was ARPANET way back when, addresses consisting of four triads seemed more than sufficient. That's 256 times 256 times 256 times 256. Do the math, and it comes out to more than 4 billion. Actually, 4,294,967,296. You'll lose some because they're not all routable. But it's still a lot of addresses, more than we thought we'd ever need. But then ARPANET became the Internet. Everybody has access, worldwide, and every phone, printer, and computer needed an address. Help! What we have now is called IPv4, the fourth revision of the Internet Protocol, or IP. So IPv4 is the most widely deployed Internet layer protocol, but IPv6 will eventually replace it. You may have wondered how much you should be concerned about all this change, because it is coming. IPv6 has much longer addresses that look funny. Instead of things like 129.145.76.204, you might have an address like 2001-0db8-85a3-0000-0001. Colon 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 Whew, just looking at that address makes me tired, and it suggests that you'll have far more options with IPv6 well, if that's all that was involved, there would be no problem, but IPv4 and IPv6 are incompatible. Oops, problem. The numbering system obviously is different, and how the system works at the hardware level is also different. IPv6 requires both hardware and software changes. If I open a command prompt and type ipconfig on my Windows computer, I'll see that my hardware does like IPv6. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website where I have highlighted the appropriate IPv6 address. But besides the hardware support, IPv6 needs software support. June 8, 2011 is World IPv6 Day. Did you know that? Put it on your calendar. That's the day that Google, Facebook, and some of the other Internet big dogs will run a day-long IPv6 test. The federal government says that all systems should be IPv6 compatible by September 30th, 2012. That means webmail, domain name server, 
Internet service provider services must all operationally use native IPv6. For the most part, the changes will occur without your help or your input or anything else from you. Browsers should be compatible by then, unless you insist on running an antique browser like Netscape. And if your system's hardware and software are reasonably current, you should see no problems. So you shouldn't need to do anything. And for most people, it will be a non-event. Oh, by the way, I suggested that IPv6 would provide more addresses. A lot more addresses. 3.4 times 10 to the 38th power. That's 340 undecision unique addresses. And I have no idea whether I pronounced undecision right or not. I've never seen the word before. In any event, 340, whatever they are, is deemed to be sufficient for the foreseeable future. In short circuits, would you follow a link to techbiter.nazi? If you do, you won't find my site, and you'll have to wait until sometime in 2012 anyway, and that's only if the Nazi top-level domain is approved, and if anybody registers TechBiter there. This is all part of a plan by ICANN, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, to create a new series of top-level domains. After all, museums, Moby, and Jobs have all proved to be so very popular. Of the last batch of new top-level domains, only Biz has much of a following. And the one top-level domain that makes sense, either XXX or Sex, is probably the one that won't ever be approved, despite the fact that it could be used to create a virtual red-light district that could then be used to segregate what some consider to be objectionable content from the rest of the Internet. Have an idea for a new top-level domain? I can. would like to hear from you. When you apply, be sure to include the $185,000 application fee and be sure to budget $25,000 per year for the top-level domain. Some of the proposed top-level domains include Eco, Love, God, Sport, Gay, and Curd. What about Cat, Dog, Sport, or Music? What if somebody wants Kangaroo or Superman? If all it takes is money to join the game, the number of possible top-level domains could jump sharply. ICANN refers to this process as the Internet Land Rush, but one could just as easily see it as a cynical way for ICANN to make money. Those who buy the top-level domains are assured of obtaining some business, though. The brand managers at large companies will need to buy all of their current trademarks under the new top-level domains. Otherwise, somebody who doesn't like the company could buy the domain name and use it to defame the brand. So, there's money in there somewhere for somebody. The engineer's engineer, Ken Olson, is dead at the age of 84. Olson founded the Digital Equipment Corporation, or DEC, which was once the world's second largest computer company, second only to IBM. In 1957, Olson used $70,000 to create DEC, and in the late 1980s, DEC had sales of $14 billion. But Olson made one serious error. A personal computer will fall flat on its face in business, Olson said. DEC had made its fortune by displacing huge and expensive IBM mainframe systems with its much smaller and less expensive mini-computers. But Olson intensely disliked personal computers. In 1992, with the company in serious trouble, DEC's board forced Olson to resign. 
and in 1998, DEC was acquired by the Compaq Computer Corporation for $9.6 billion. Digital's mini-computers were huge by today's standards. The Series 11 systems generally fit in what are called highboy cabinets with 19-inch-wide racks. But instead of costing millions of dollars, as IBM's systems did, DEC's mini-computers could be purchased for just tens of thousands of dollars. What Olson missed was the fact that desktop systems, which he called toys, could be had for thousands, not tens of thousands. Instead of being the company that led the parade to desktop computing, digital became the company that tried to maintain the status quo in a business that does not like the status quo. Olson, who is recognized as the father of the mini-computer, could have been the man recognized as the father of the desktop computer. After serving in the Navy at the end of World War II, Olson earned degrees from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and worked at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory from 1950 until he formed DEC in 1957 with co-worker Harlan Anderson. Ever the engineer, Olson hired smart people, gave them responsibility, and expected them to perform. After being kicked out of digital, Olson formed Advanced Modular Solutions, but that company eventually failed. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.